In a new series based on a novel by Stephen King, James Franco's character travels back in time to stop the murder of JFK. On Pop Culture Confidential, meet Bridget Carpenter, writer, showrunner, and executive producer of the new show, 11-22-63. Hi, I'm Christina yerling Biro. Thank you for listening. So for the past few years, J.J. Abrams has been very busy. For example, he's gone from iconic American storytelling with Star Wars to iconic American storytelling with Stephen King. Abrams is the executive producer of King's JFK time travel thriller 112263. And with him, he has Bridget Carpenter, who's adapted the 900-page novel for the eight-part series. Bridget Carpenter is a playwright and an Emmy Award-nominated writer on the beloved drama series Friday Night Lights and Parenthood. 112263 follows Jake Epping, played by James Franco, a divorced high school teacher who travels through a time portal in the back of a local diner, to 1960, where he's on a three-year mission to prevent the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, following Lee Harvey Oswald and falling in love. I'm going to tell you something. It's going to seem crazy. I need you to go in this closet, take a look around, then I'll tell you everything. That was 1960. I need you to go back there to prevent the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I'm from out of town, am I right? You shouldn't be here. I had my life. I don't know whether Oswald was the man who did it. You'll figure out the rest when you get there. You see, the past doesn't want to be changed. When you're close to changing something, you feel it pushed back. Last thing you can say about killing a man is that it's brave. Mr. Amberson, this is Miss Stunhill. She's starting off. When rules are broken, there's a price. Price must be paid to set things right. CIA's pulling the trigger. What do we do now? Then you kill Oswald. Everything you say is a lie. the series opens up to one of those questions we've inevitably been asked at one point or another. If you could go back in time and stop a horrible historical event from happening, would you? I started by asking showrunner and writer Bridget Carpenter if she had thought about this while adapting the novel. I did not. I was consumed with uh, the 800 plus pages of the book (laughs) and uh, now having lived in in, uh, making it, I can tell you that I would not go back. You wouldn't? Okay. What resonated for you as a writer showrunner with this particular story? I love the, the, the fact that Stephen King is really, in this book, willing to um, live with some really, I found, I find profound contradictions. And, and the ones that he expressed to me personally was, he said, you know, when I wrote this book, I wanted, I was thinking about two things. I was thinking that the 60s were great mm-hmm. and the 60s sucked. <laughs> and I I love that. I think that both things are true and can be true, and uh, that's what I think great stories do: is that you know two opposing ideas can coexist. What kind of, did you have talks with uh, Mr. King? Did you get guidance during your writing process? 
Um, yeah, he had veto. He had and he has veto power over um, everything. So I did. Um, I did take a big swing at it and uh, told him, you know, what I wanted to do, and he was uh, privy to everything at every turn, and um, he just kept saying yes. So yeah, he. Uh, I, I turned to him um, just to, you know, he knew how much I. He knew and he knows how much I love the project and love the book. And uh, so there was a real foundation of trust there. Does King have any, does he present any new sort of JFK theories or, or is it the Lee Harvey Oswald? Well, King, Stephen King is a single cheater theorist. And that is the story that his um, book follows. You know, the, the, the story of this protagonist in the book is actually one that, that's sort of rooted in doubt. He is. He does. He goes back to the past, being unsure. Mm. If he were sure, if he really felt that he knew, which in fact no one does, for sure. That's why there have been thousands of books written about this over the past fifty plus years. But right. his, you know, his protagonist goes back, saying, "I think it is Lee, and I think he acted alone, but I'm not sure." And so his time in the past is spent surveillingly to try to see if he can glean any real answer. Right, right. So surveillingly before that fateful day, hoping to learn, is it a conspiracy or is it somebody who did it alone? King is definitely falls in the, he worked alone camp and um, I've, uh, I've made the, the, sh- the hard left turn and I'm the conspiracy theorist. Oh, interesting. Even though you've worked on this yeah. for so long. Yeah. Okay. Actually, I told him that it was his fault. I was a single sh- shooter um, theorist myself before I worked on this project and now I'm, I've completely turned around. But what changed your mind? There are just too many things that don't add up. It's just, there's meant there, I mean, there, there are hundreds of things. I don't, I don't, you know, call myself an expert by any stretch. It's just, now I now I think no, there's there's no way that he actually <laughs> But uh, uh, you know, Stephen King just shakes his head at me and says, "Oh, Bridget." That's good. <laughs> um, I understand that James Franco was cast in your series after a tweet. Is that true? Yes, he and so he had uh, yes, he had options. He had sorry, he had, uh, was very interested in um, you know getting the rights to the book himself because he loves the story. And uh, when he did not get the rights, he had heard J.J. Abrams um, already uh, was working with Stephen King and The Bad Rebel. We were basically all in it and adapting and working. He wrote an essay about the book, I think for, I think it was for Vice. And then he tweeted it and we all, you know, became aware of it. And we went, let's get in touch with him, let's get in touch with him. So he and J.J. Um, started talking and very quickly it all fell into place. So, um... It was really exciting. God bless Twitter. Yes, really. <laughs> um, were there challenges working with such a big star? He's like all over the place. You know, uh, I think it's, you know, the, the challenge is that like he is all over the place, but this project is so, was so consuming. And, you know, he virtually is in almost every frame of, you know, nine hours of television. So, no, we had him in one place and he shot it and he not only did he, you know, star in it, but he directed an episode and he was uh, also a producer. So no, he's a he's a really um gifted and driven artist. And uh you know, the challenge was um begging him to sleep a little more. I guess I would call that <laughs> with a great challenge. 
you know, don't don't leave on a weekend and shoot a commercial. <laughs> he he's very excellent for this time. There's something about his look in this era that that works really well. I agree. He wears those clothes well. Um, could you talk a little bit about your process? As you mentioned uh, at the top, it's an 800-page book. How, how do you start adapting such an iconic voice as Mr. King's? There's a great teacher, writer, Annie Lamont, who wrote a great book called Bird by Bird, which was you know, essentially how her brother had to approach a thesis, a project on you know, birds of North America, and you just take it bird by bird. So, you know, you, you break it down, you look at the chapters, you look at the, I felt like just looking at all the elements that I loved in the book and made sure to, you know, shoehorn those in there and let fall away the things that I thought slowed the um, story down dramatically. I'm actually married to a screenwriter and we have our ah. walls covered with post-its <laughs> in several yeah, room, yeah, yeah. rooms that he has been allowed to post-it cover. Um, do, you, do you have any type of process like that? Yes, I had a, um, I had a uh, office and three walls of it were, um, were corkboard. And every inch of that corkboard was covered with index cards. So I'm an index card, a tax and index card myself. Okay. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it was like you know, like my 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 you know joke was like it was like the the murder wall. It's like the wall of a serial killer. Right. So yes, there's lots of moving cards around. That's what scribbles, there's lots of cross-outs, and there's lots of me pacing around that office. Yeah, yeah, I, I can tell you guys have a mysterious process that you go through to get it. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite King adaptation coming into this? Because there are, I mean, peop, there are those that people love, and I mean, it's a very big thing to take on. Yeah, you know, I loved, let's see, um, I, I will say that I didn't really think of any particular adaptation while I was Adapting this, um, I am an admirer of the Shawshank Redemption. I think that's a really lovely um, book, a lovely you know novella, and then a great movie that was made from it. And let's see, Misery is fantastic. That's a wonderful adaptation. But none of those um, previous adaptations uh, sort of informed um, what I wanted to do. Those are just things that I I like because I'm a fan. I approach this more about how do you just take the book that I love that's that's there, the book that's really galloping along at a fantastic pace, and make it as wonderfully paced and compelling uh, on screen. And for that, I turned to, you know, suspense thrillers that I loved and, um, honestly, street photographers. So I, as, you know, source material, I turned to the photography of um, Robert Frank, uh, Vivian Meyer, of Gary Winogrand, of Lee Freelander, people who photographed um, in journalistic, you know, almost documentary style, uh, the you know, late 50s and 60s, early 60s, and uh, that's where I found inspiration visually. This is really something we sort of iconography. We're so familiar with that horrible day in Dallas with the Zapruder film, and we've seen just countless reenactments. So I can imagine you really had to go to a lot of material to recreate it. Were you in, on location? We, um, yes, we shot in Dallas for a week, and we were in Dealey Plaza for two days. And those were very, those were profound days. Um, you know, it was uh, really our mission 
to uh, get the details right. I want to ask you as a writer, I mean, you can correct me if this is just, there seems to be something, you write so well, particularly mythical Americana, if, if it's Friday Night Lights and this story and then we're in election year. And is, is that, does that appeal to you? Am I right in saying that? I like that phrase. I feel like I'm going to steal mythical Americana. Oh, good. I like it. <laughs> You're um, welcome to. I'm I don't honor. think I, I don't think I, you know, I don't, I, I'm like any writer and none of the writers that I know, myself included, ever really categorize ourselves. Um, but that said, I do think of myself certainly as an American writer and I like, I like delving into, a, you know, as a, the American psyche and I do think that there's something about history that is, you know, both appealing because there's things that you know about it, and it's appealing because there's things that you don't know, and so you want to break it open and take a fresh look. So, yeah, all of those are, are, are ways that I think about, you know, writing about a particular place and time. Well, I think you're particularly good at it, and it's interesting to watch this this year with the election and the Kennedy era being so iconic and pop cultural somehow and what's going on. I mean, yeah. you really sort of catch a time where things are good and bad, as you were saying at the beginning. But you're also working with someone else on this project who's a particularly good at these big stories, and that's J.J. Abrams. What was his influence for you on this project? You know, he is such an incisive, um, thoughtful, and really soulful creator. He, it was a really interesting experience because um, as you might have heard of the other movie that he was working on simultaneously. It's a little thing called Star Wars, <laughs> uh, The Force Awakens. <laughs> also mythical Americana. Yes, exactly. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. It's like humanism. So as you know, like he, he's, a, you know he's a humanistic writer and director. Um, so... The conversations that he... There are two things that were really incredible about working with him. Um, the first is that, you know, he comes at things from a deeply real, grounded um, human perspective, So, which was exactly the way that I wanted to open up this story. I wanted to make it real. I didn't want to make it fantastic. I didn't want to make it something that kind of lived like a fairy tale. And the other thing is that this is more in terms of process, but... You know, he's a, a creator who is um, deeply empowering. And so he and I would have, you know, conversations about character and story. And then he would say, you know, this is yours. Go do your job. And that that's really um, incredible to come across. Somebody who is both, you know, confident in themselves and confident in you to do your work. So that's something that I, w- I would certainly want to pass on. Uh, you've been working with the, you know, the huge Stephen King and J.J. Abrams, but I love something your agent apparently said, and that's, if you want something done in Hollywood, ask a working mom. <laughs> Is that true? That you're Yes, <laughs> that's right. Oh, my God. Absolutely. She said it, and I was like, that's right. Absolutely. No, I, those are words I, I have to maybe they're on my gravestone. <laughs> and you are one of the big few female showrunners in the industry today. How, do you see things changing, and, and what sort of advice do you want to give women in the industry? Well, there's I love those questions. Um, I do see things changing. I think that people, I think that there's a, um, I think there's a movement. People are aware that we can't 
be stagnant and that it's ridiculous for an industry that is so progressive and gives so many creative people really incredible work should lag so far behind in terms of, you know, gender and racial, racial parity. It's absurd. Um, I do think people realize that. I think that, like anything, there's no sitting back. There's no sitting back. There's no like, okay, great, now everybody knows. Everybody has to keep working. And rem- and I, I include myself among those who you can always do better in terms of who you hire and what you represent. And for, you know, women who are creators, who are writers, directors, you know, I would just, there's so many, there's no one piece of advice (laughs) that is um, singular, but I would say to know in your heart that there's, there's room at the table and you have to make sure and drop, you know, and drop your chair and sit at the table and, and be confident in what you bring. So go in and get what you want. I think so. I mean, that's, that, that would be advice, you know, like that, that's gender free advice, but maybe it's advice that women need to hear more because, you know, nobody does hand you anything, you know, men or women. It's like a Rubik's cube that is never going to be completely solved, but you just have to keep keep turning it. I, you know, like, I think it's like, be, you know, be relentless, be kind at the same time. Those are two, you know, two contradictory things existing at once, you know, there's a, you know, be generous and also ask for, ask for what's yours. No, that's right. That's right. You know, ask for what's yours, you know, stand up and say what you need to say and be generous at the same time. What, what is your next project after this? Um, you know, I am writing a musical for uh, Disney that is having its world premiere this year. Uh, it's the musical Freaky Friday. Ooh, I love that movie. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's a, it'll be a stage musical uh, later this year. Oh, very cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. I know that it's limited, and this was so much fun and for the series, and I hope everyone watches it here as well. Great to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. Thank you so much to showrunner, writer, and exec producer Bridget Carpenter. 112263 premieres in Sweden on Fox April 11th with a special double episode. And it's on Hulu in the U.S. right now. And thank you so much for joining us. And to my Swedish listeners, I'm really happy to let you know that Pop Culture Confidential is going to be collaborating with Tiavedax, a leading Swedish site for everything television, film, and pop culture. I'm really happy about this because Tiavedax features some of the best writers and most comprehensive pop culture commentary you can find here in Sweden. So on their site, tvdax.se, and on their Facebook, you'll find more on 112263, for example, and a whole bunch of other shows. And you can also look out for Pop Culture Confidential interviews there as well. Read more about it on our site, popcultureconfidential.com, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, intro music by Carl Boy, produced by René Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thank you so much. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. 
We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.